This podcast is created and produced by Innovator. If you're looking to cut back or eliminate hot work on your next job, or for all of your industrial services needs, visit innovator.ca. Hello and welcome to the Industrial Innovators Podcast, hosted by founder and CEO of Innovator, Don Cooper. I am Wyatt McPherson, I produce this show, and this week we have the General Manager and Technical Director of Innovator, Chris Coombs, returning to the show again this week to talk about laser flatness inspection and all that it can do for you and your company, especially when compared to the traditional dial-in manual methods that we're sure most of you and your competitors are using. So keep listening to find out how laser flatness inspection can aid in giving you the upper hand today. And if you'd like more information or would like to get in contact with any of the team here at Innovator, you can do so at any time at innovator.ca. Now let's get on with the episode. Good day, everyone, and welcome back to the Industrial Innovators Podcast. I'm your host, Don Cooper, and today we have Chris Coombs, Innovators Integrator and General Manager and also Technical Director, and today we're going to be talking about laser flatness inspection and how that relates particularly to clients with uh, large components like heat exchangers and pressure vessels. Uh, Chris, welcome. Hi, Don. Thanks for having me. Well, welcome back to the show. We've had you for a couple of episodes as one of uh, our subject matter experts. And I'm really uh, excited to talk about this topic today, laser flatness, because I think, you know, we have clients who use this service and, and find it to be an exceptional gain in productivity and in inspection quality. But, um, it uh, there, there's a lot of clients out there who are still following the traditional methods and um, uh, and are not leveraging this technology probably because they don't know it or uh, they don't know how to leverage it and don't understand the value. So uh, I think this is a great way for us to uh, share a a high productivity advancement in uh, in. Uh, you know, part of a client's leak-free program, which obviously is uh, a big focus of ours at Innovator. So, so why don't you um, why don't you share with the audience exactly what we're talking about? Like, what is the technology that we're using for this idea of laser flatness inspection? Yeah, for sure. So, to start it off, maybe the best way to explain it is to first just talk a little bit about what we're trying to achieve which like you said, it's, it's, a bolt, it's a leak-free connection. So we're talking about bolted joint integrity. And part of an integral part of achieving a leak-free connection, connection is having a flat ceiling surface. So bolted connections use gaskets. And you know, this is not the, not the bolting podcast, not the bolted connection podcast, but they, they use gaskets. And, and the ceiling surface that that gasket rests on is, you know, needs to be flat. If it's not flat, it can cause deformation. Um, it can cause compression in certain areas, more so than in other areas of the flange. So if you picture compressing two surfaces together and there's high and low spots, then you're gonna have gaps or you're gonna have unequal comp- compression throughout that gasket. And by ensuring and measuring the flatness of your ceiling face, you're ensuring that you have that equal compression with the gasket. You know, you think about an engineer designing a bolt load calculation for a bolted joint, 
he's assuming that face is perfectly flat. There, there's no part of that calculation that accounts for highs and lows. Now a gasket is designed to maybe take up some of that, but not the flange itself. So the flange is assumed to be flat. Now we know nothing is gonna be perfectly flat, but that's where the inspection comes in. So what we're doing is whether we're using the traditional method or we're using the laser, we're measuring how flat that component is. But flat in itself, it's more, it's, it's a relationship almost to itself. It's, you know, if there's highs and lows on the flange, how high are those highs and how low are the lows? And, you know, overall, is that surface within tolerance? Is kind of what we're looking at. So the, you know, the, the technology that we use to do it, there's two technologies that are predominantly used when we consider the optimized approach. There's um, coordinate measuring machine, so a laser CMM that, that we use most often. And then you can also use scanning technology. So for Innovator, we use a, a ferrule laser tracker. And, and that's a, a laser coordinate measuring device that has an optical laser that follows what we call an SMR. And an SMR is really just a, uh, it's a mirror that you hold in your hand and it can take pinpoint measurements at any location to where you place that mirror. So it's really no different than using a traditional measuring tool. Um, you're getting the same information, you just do it much more precise, much more accurate and much faster. Right. So, and uh, just just touch on this to to give context for uh, our listeners. The traditional approach is what. So the traditional approach, you know, when we call it a runout. It's a little bit backwards, I think, when you think of it as a runout. But the traditional approach is to use the equipment itself that's involved in repairing the face of the flange. So when you determine that the flange needs to come back to a you know, back to flatness, back to tolerance, you use what we call a flange facer. So an OD or an ID mount machining device that will rotate around the ceiling surface and reduce those high spots back to, you know, back to the lowest spot on the flange or, or close to the lowest spot on the flange to bring it back to flat. So those are called, those are called flange facers. They either mount on the OD of the flange or on the ID in the, in the bore of the flange. And it's the actual machine itself that you would use to turn down those metal high spots that we use. Very, very robust, very large, very heavy pieces of equipment. The reason I said, you know, when we call it a runout, it's a little backwards. It's just a runout is, is designed for like a shaft, a rotating object. And then you, you measure what you would call the wobble in that rotating object away from its axis. In this case, the flange itself isn't rotating the flange facer rotates around the flange and then you measure the wobble in the flange facer to give you that runout report versus spinning the flange. So it, it's just, it's the same thing. It's just a little, the, the idea is a little bit backwards. In a runout, usually the measuring device is stationary and the tool or the, the piece of the, that you're measuring does the rotating. So the comparison is <clears throat> we're using a laser to take fast, accurate, um, 
coordinates on the flange to determine flatness versus on a machine tool, we're using a dial indicator. So, you know, the traditional approach is, you know, effectively using machinist millwright type approaches to take a whole bunch of points of measurement with a machinist dial to determine those flatness points. Yeah, the, the process is uh, really simple. And, and um, you know this from, you know, how we approach our business. And it's really about, uh, the way I, I like to view this is we've taken the traditional approach and we've automated it in a sense. You know, it's not exactly a direct comparison, but we're still measuring in quadrants. So, you know, in, in the traditional approach, you would separate your flange into quadrants, you would rotate it, and you would identify those high spots and low spots by rotating the, the flange facer around the ceiling face, and you would mark them on the flange or on your flange report. And what we're doing is very similar. We're using the laser with the SMR, so we're taking pinpoint measurements in each quadrant, all depending on the OD of the flange, how many measurements we'll take. So it could be two, three, you know, eight, 10 per quadrant. And then we're using computer software to compare all those measurements and produce a report that shows us the highs and lows and if the surface is within flatness tolerance. Right. Now, talking about tolerance, and you, you mentioned gaskets. Now, the flanges shouldn't be a part of the plan for dealing with the tolerance acceptance with flatness, and the gasket has some. But we're talking about metal gaskets that are very, very thin. Um, a lot of the time, the gaskets are like 125 thousandths of an inch thick before they're compressed yeah that's right there's there's not a lot of there's not a lot of give so i don't want to give people the impression that there's you know this cushion between your flanges that you can just take up any space um that's not the case right. a lot of times these are high pressure connections the the gaskets well compressible are made you know from a very stiff metal you know, and then they go down to a semi-metal or, or non-metallic and they have a little bit more give, but there is not a lot of room for air when it comes to the, you know, being out of, being out of tolerance. So when we're talking about flatness, so we're talking about 12 thousandths of an inch on, on some smaller flanges, maybe 16 thousandths of an inch from flat, what well, we would say from flat on, you know, on your regular, maybe 40 inch OD, 60 inch OD um, flange. And that tolerance, when you say 16,000, that could be, you know, zero being the midpoint, minus 8,000 and plus 8,000 being that range of capability for that gasket. That's you know, right. right. So it's, you know, when we say we're going to take up a lot, we're talking about a few thousandths of an inch is the difference between that gasket performing and sealing that component like a heat exchanger or a reactor and it not doing its job. Exactly. And there's a secondary kind of, there's another, it's the right word, like a result. There's, there's another um, like symptom that'll happen. So your flange will leak, right? So the, flange, the surfaces are not flat. The gasket can't account for the compression. So now you've got a leaking joint, you know? In not every facility, but, you know, I'll, I'll let you kind of guess where I'm going with this. What's going to happen when that joint is leaking? What's the first thing some of, you know, some of our operators are going to do with a leaking bolted joint? 
Well, they're going to, depending on the client and their approach, they're either going to try to tighten it, which is probably yep. their first operations approach, or they're going to try to leak seal it. Right. So let's go with the tightening option. So now, you know, provided they tighten it accordingly, you know, they, they used a, a method of controlled bolting, whether it's torquing or tensioning. And, and, you know, they're measuring the residual stress. They even rechecked it after operation. So after they had some, you know, heat go into the studs and potentially the studs relax a little, they tighten them again. Let's assume they did an appropriate bolting procedure. Now they're over tightening their studs. They're, they're adding a rotational effect to the flange and they're warping it even more. And, and you know, doing that under, under operation, doing that under heat, it's just going to make that warping and rotational force easier. And you're just exaggerating the problem. You're, you're making it worse. Um, you're not addressing the root cause. You're also deforming the flange even more. So it's kind of like it goes beyond just not being able to seal a leak. And, and it creates a situation where you get yourself into more trouble by, by trying. Right. You know what? <clears throat> To, just to clarify, you know, when we're talking about these tolerances, you know, and you mentioned um, 12,000 tolerance, 16,000 tolerance, what you're really talking about is the design capabilities of, of, of a range of different types of gaskets. And, and what, what a lot of clients will might see is they'll have a spiral wound gasket with an outer ring. It's 120, you know, the spiral piece is, um, is 125 thousandths of an inch thick. And the metal ring, that retaining ring, is a compression stop that stops the gasket from compressing at, you know, maybe up to 40 or 50,000 total compression. Um, and so tightening it, it, you, have, you, have, you have a piece of metal in there that is no longer going to allow you to tighten it anymore. You know, you can tighten the studs, but the gasket has no more compressibility and, you know, and it, it can't rebound back to be that, to be that flexible, uh, resilient spring between the bolting and, and the pressure and tightening it more when it gets a leak might serve you in the short term and, but often not, particularly on large components and, and, and is causing some longer term issues that are eventually going to create even more work absolutely um i um it's it's summer and uh you you know you know me from from our meetings and when we're sharing some good news i'm talking about golf a lot and uh, i have a, a golf analogy that i think about with this sort of thing is you know anyone who's like me when they're golfing they slice the ball they do that because they're aiming to the left and then their club is is open to the right so your ball goes from left to right. What do all slicers do when the ball goes from left to right? They aim more left, which makes the ball go more right. And so that's kind of what we're, what we're doing here. You know, like you're trying to, you have a leak. So instead of fixing, you know, instead of fixing your slice, you're trying to fix the leak. And all you're doing is making the problem worse. That's a great analogy. And if I was any good at golf or, uh, you know, I, I can relate to the heavy slice because uh, as you were describing that, you know, that's exactly what I do is I, yeah. if I, if I know that I'm slicing it and going and, and my ball keeps going heavily, right. I'll just keep aiming further and further. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. But, you know, but it's also, um, 
Uh, and you know, and so the analogy for me is, well, I don't golf very much, so that's just the best I can do. And exactly. I think that's the same thing for our clients. They don't, you know, they don't deal with leaking heat exchangers all the time. And so they've, you know, they're trying to be adaptable to what's the present state. And I think the point of this is if you do this right and you actually uh, use flatness as part of your program, um, then you can avoid having to overcorrect uh, when you're when you're swinging your club, right? Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. You know, but the, the challenge is, uh, you know, a lot of clients. I mean, and you know, when we're 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 laser inspection or and dialing in a flange for flatness, uh, we're not talking about. Um, defects like scratches and pits and whatnot. We're just simply talking about flatness. Um, this really comes into play for larger components like, um, you know, heat exchanger components, um, particularly heat exchanger components that have a lot of thermal dynamics going on, uh, sometimes having different gradients across the, across the heat exchanger. And it's also on, you know, on, on large reactor components. Um, and, you know, the places where I, uh, I think of lots of examples where this, you know, people should just be doing this always is always on, uh, on heat exchangers and on places like reactors and in particular uh, coker dump nozzles where they've got these very large, awkward flange connections and their traditional approach is uh, mounting a, a thousand pound flange facer and setting it up and getting machinists to set it up just to dial it in. They're, they're not even setting up the, heat, the, the piece of field machining equipment to actually perform machining. The, the, the initial intent is set that piece of equipment up to dial it in. And you know I've done a lot of that in my career and before this laser technology was was available and you know to dial in a 60 inch flange um, can be a four hour activity it can be an eight hour activity and that that four to eight hours is for one gasket face and a heat exchanger might have six or eight different gasket surfaces yeah so what happens when a client has 50 heat exchangers that are coming apart that are all, that all need to be flat and you know, what do they do? What are they doing in the traditional approach? So I, I what they're doing is, so some clients, I mean, there's different clients are going to have different programs. So depending on the level of inspection that you're going to employ, you're going to do a couple of different things. You're going to, you're going to hedge your bets a little bit and you're going to say, well, this one didn't leak last year. So we're not going to inspect that one. We're going to clean it up. We're going to have a look at it. We're going to put it back in service because the reality is you can't inspect them all with the traditional method. There's not on site anyway, which will bring me to the next point here in a minute. But so you, you can inspect them all. So maybe you'll target the leakers or you'll have a little bit of a, a program that says, well, I expected this bank last year. Now I'll expect to inspect the next bank of exchangers next year. Um, they do visual inspections. They clean them up. Um, you know, maybe they can do some hand tools depending on how big they are and, and bring some levels in and, and try and assess flatness that way. 
but you're going to have a big gap in that program. You're going to have assets that are going to come out and they're going to go back into service without an inspection and you're going to miss something. So I think that's just inevitable. Clients who, who maintain 100% inspection on their flange ceiling surfaces, which there are those clients, they end up shipping them offsite and they ship their components to a local machine shop and they spend weeks going through each component, still dialing in with um, machining equipment to determine flatness. And they'll leave their big, you know, well, obviously they'll leave their in-place components, like their shell flanges and things like that, that they're not moving those. And they'll use the, the flange faces to inspect those. And then the components that are removed and cleaned, they ship them off site. And so then they, not only do they have that extra time logistical cost, they're now taking a critical asset and, and you know, and it's leaving their facility, right? Like they, they're losing sight of it. They, they got to, obviously they're going to trust their, their supplier that they're going to do the work and return it. But I mean, that's got to be an uneasy feeling as well that if you've got, you know, a critical exchanger on your critical path and it's now leaving your site for, for some work. So um, those are really the two, the two things that we see. Yeah. I mean, I, and I think, uh, you know, we we know of a couple of clients who have a very robust flatness uh, a flatness inspection program, and they had done all of that. They had a team of field machinists and field machining equipment on site, uh, dialing in or doing the runouts uh, on all of the fixed components, and then they took all of the uh, loose components like shells, uh, sorry, like uh, bundles and, and, uh, and channel heads and covers, and they would send those away from the shell. To, and, and the only reason they do that is they need a whole bunch of different resources in different ways to be able to accomplish what they're trying to accomplish, but they lose control of their components. Yeah. And uh, inevitably, they're, they can't do everything. If you, with that approach, if you have you know, and I would say, let's say 30, 40, 50 heat exchangers. And we've seen clients who took apart, you know, that many often. Well, those 50 heat exchangers are going to have arguably at least, at least four gasketed surfaces, probably six or eight. So it's somewhere between 200 and 400 uh, runouts that they need to do using a machine shop, using portable, using portable machinists to do all this dialing in just to check flatness. That's and, that, and, and the whole point of checking the flatness is to go through all of those components to find the 10 or 15 or 20 surfaces that need some work, that need, uh, that need some machining or some well buildup or whatever to bring them back to within tolerances. And, you know, a lot of our clients, you know, we mentioned uh, gasket uh, tolerance, but within their programs, many clients, obviously to, you know, they, desi they design their tolerance for, for acceptability to be within a narrower, narrower range of obviously what the gasket tolerances are so that they have uh, a margin of control and error. So, you know, I think what we've seen often is clients that will have a specification for flatness that is like, you know, minus zero and plus 10 thou. And so they're giving themselves this, you know, 10 thousandths of an inch tolerance, which, 
you know, that is paper thin relative to the entire 60 inch gasketed area in terms of how, 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 how flat it needs to be to be within spec for their program. And so you can't, and, and just, you know, for reference, you can't really have a program that says I'm going to allow for 30 thou because that's allowing for leakage. It is. And the program also takes into account that you're not comparing the mating flanges together. Right. right. So you think about, you know, like one flange, you know, could be off and the other one could be off in the exact opposite way, mating for a nice mating connection. Mm -hmm. But you're not doing that comparison. So you're setting up maybe a little bit more strict tolerance per component so that the stacking tolerance doesn't generate a leak. So, right. you know, that's a lot of probably what's happening when you have, when you consider the flatness spec itself. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I spent a lot of my career doing exactly what we're talking about, dialing in flanges. Um, and not because we have to machine them just because we have to, um, we have to check the flatness. And so what you end up having is a crew of specialists who have a, a several large pieces of expensive field machining equipment that even though they're not machining, the client is paying for that piece of equipment like it's a piece of field machining equipment and it's taking four hours or eight hours to check a check the flatness and they only have so many of those resources so you're paying for a capability that you're not really using uh, because of you know because of one of the functions that a a flange facer can traditionally do but from an economic standpoint, from a productivity standpoint, wh what are we talking about in terms of if, you know, efficiency if you, you know, comparing the traditional method to uh, our laser program? For sure. So, you know, it, it's, really, it's really not even close, but I will set it up to start with that if you have, you know, one surface, you know, and, and I don't know how you would, you know, you would never really have the one surface because you have mating components like we've just talked about. But if for whatever reason there was, you know, there was, there's just one surface, it needs inspection and potentially machining, you know, we would show up with our flange facer to do that job because, you know, the potential that you may need it and it's one surface. So you would, you would do that with the flange facer. And at that point, if you're just comparing one to one, you know, the productivity gain by using a laser is not significant, not enough to incorporate. I, I wouldn't recommend using the laser for that purpose. When we talk about doing multiple components and doing components in different locations, we exponentially increase our productivity. So I think the best way for me to describe it is to like kind of get into some scenarios. So for a, you know, for a shutdown event, which, you know, would be a typical event where we would deploy this technology, exchangers are coming apart, exchangers are being cleaned, components are being cleaned. There, you know, there's, there's a, a wash pad area, a lay down area, and then there's work being done in units. What we do is we typically would de deploy a laser to a unit and a laser to a wash pad area. We inspect... In a, in a wash pad area, we can inspect in days what it would take weeks at an offsite or even longer using a traditional flange tracer. 
So we're talking 30, you know, more than 30 components. So channel heads, dollar plates, um, all of those things. We're, talk we're talking about 30 components a day inspected, you know, in a, in a wash pad area. Whereas, you know, some of those components, when you talk about, you know, securing them with dunnage, securing them so you can actually mount the flange tracer, you're looking at two components a day, um, right. right? So we're, we're talking 30 one way, two another way. Um, so about a, about a 15 fold increase in productivity. Exactly. And well, we and, talk, and, and the reality is that it's not just a 15 fold increase in productivity. It's an, it's, it's probably a 15 near a 15 fold increase in actual inspections performed because most clients simply don't have the time in a turnaround to inspect all 30 of those components, uh, even with a traditional method. And they end up being very selective over what they inspect versus what they don't inspect. Absolutely. And now picture that, you know, your components are being inspected so fast that they're moving from station to station. So now you move from that inspection station and you, we've identified that 10 out of the 30, which is actually a really high rate from what we've seen. We typically see about 10% um, fail with, and that's all going to be facility and, and client specific. So that number, you know, you would need that data on your own assets to, to assess a pass fail rate. But in one example, we had about a 10% fail rate. So while we inspected the, the 30 in that day, two of those, and potentially even three, depending on the efficiency of the machining crew, were machined that day. So now all those assets are good to go back to work. Whereas yeah. you would have been a week, two, three weeks inspecting and machining that same lot of components. Right. Yeah, I mean, and so, I mean, what we're talking about, I and mean, we approach this in almost everything we do. It's that we're not introducing a new piece of technology to totally replace another piece of technology that's already working. We're simply changing the dynamics and, and effectively giving our clients another tool in their toolbox that drives productivity, that drives safety, that drives product, uh, that drives cost effectiveness. You know, those three pillars of, of, of what, why we try to introduce innovation. And so we're not saying get rid of field machining equipment. We're saying use field machining equipment for field machining and use the machinists for field machining and then use the laser and a laser technician to do all the flatness checks all in the same time coordinated together so that you can just get way more in, in work done both in terms of finding the defects and repairing the defects very, very quickly. Yeah, absolutely. The, one of the key things, and, and this is important, I think this is really important for any clients who are hesitant to use this technology. The way we've designed it, the way the process that we've implemented, it doesn't change anything inside of their own inspection program, how they would have, you know, how they receive, how they analyze and review the results of the reports, the information that they get from the traditional method versus the information they get from this method. It's exactly the same. It's just faster. You know, it, it's instant versus waiting, you know, the waiting game, but we haven't changed anything on their end. And I think that's really important, you know, for, for a client, who, who wasn't watching the work, they would have no idea that we used a laser other than 
how did you do this so fast? Right. Yeah, I mean, it is it is fundamentally more accurate, but uh, the the real gain is in speed and in the amount of work you can do and the cost of doing that. So, you know, the cost, let's just think about this for a second. If you take a two-person or three, you know, you might even need three people on a a 60-inch flange facer, particularly for setup for rigging. And, you know, once you're running the machine, one person can run it, but there's that, you know, four hours or more of setting it up and centering it and leveling it um, with a crane and with dunnage, you know, that's a multi-person activity to get that large piece of equipment fixed to the heat exchanger. And so you're paying, you know, $500 a day, $1,500, $2,000, depending on the size of equipment, it could be, it could be two or $3,000 a day for the piece of equipment. And you're paying for three or four people that, you know, let's say it's a thousand dollars a day per person, you know, it might be seven fifty, but it's, you know, you're, you're going to be paying five or $8,000 per shift for field machinists to dial in one to three components. So you're talking, you're talking about a run out to, to do an inspection on one large surface is somewhere in the range of 2,500 to $4,000 per flatness inspection. And with a, a laser, you can effectively do that with one technician. Depending on, uh, depending on the situation, um, when you're in a situation where you can do it with one, um, depending on, you know, some, some unit locations, maybe your connection is, you know, requires scaffolding. Maybe you're not that close to the computer, um, you know, so to, to monitor, you would, you would use two, you would use a two person team, um, to execute. Uh, right. I, I would say that traditionally, especially on larger diameter components, that the laser team is still a two-person team. Okay. So two people versus two to four people. Um, the equipment is similarly priced. So a laser is going to cost you, depending on the model and whatnot, you know, a thousand to two thousand dollars a day. Uh, with the computers and all that stuff, plus the technicians. So on a day rate basis, you know, a laser team is probably four or $5,000 a day. And depending on the field machining capabilities, um, for that one asset, you're going to spend, you know, similar, maybe a little bit, probably a little bit more money. But the flatness inspection cost is one fifteenth of the of the cost. So if one flatness inspection with a dial indicator and a field machining crew cost you two to four thousand dollars we're talking about hundreds of dollars for a laser flatness inspection because of the speed of what we can produce that's exactly it and that's why i mentioned in the beginning that if you're doing one flange it doesn't make sense because you could be doubling your cost by the time you do the laser inspection determine that it's failed and then require the machine Right. So you're not saving anything there, but when you can, you know, the minute that you do more than two, you're automatically in savings. Yeah. And we're just yeah. talking about, you know, the impact that we're having on the project, because we know that resource loading for a thousand pound flange facer impacts your project more than just that. Oh, for sure. Phase. 
Right. Yeah, there's likely, the client has likely got a team of boilermakers and crane operators uh, and laborers who are staging equipment, moving equipment, uh, lifting equipment, using dunnage to set things up, uh, scaffolders potentially. There's there's a whole bunch of indirect costs that uh, that are related to just getting that flatness done. Now, obviously, some of the things that they're doing support work that they're going to be doing with other trades later, but we can eliminate a lot of that, you know. So it, it, it's, it's, it's astounding to me uh, the, the, the gain in productivity. So you know, I want to just hone in on something because, um, you know, we're not just talking about a, a piece of equipment. We're not, we're not talking about, hey, go get a laser and check all your flatness because I don't think it's that straightforward. Uh, you know, we we went through a lot of training for and developing for our people, and that part was you know it was a cost, but it was third party training. But we actually developed processes that helped us really make this super efficient, because when you just go out and buy a laser, it's likely not set up to go and inspect flatness on whatever component you want. So can you walk me through? Um, you know, what we had to do to, to make this service um, report ready for clients. Absolutely. Um, so, and just before that, I, I want to maybe give, um, give some of your listeners a better idea on the technology. I, I might not have described it very good in the beginning. So I wanted to, I wanted them to be able to picture a little bit more what we're talking about. So I would say picture, you know, maybe a surveying laser the, the component itself exists on a tripod. So, so picture tripod, and then we have a, the, the head of the component, which is where the laser is housed, is a rotating piece of equipment. And that laser follows what I referred to earlier as an SMR, which is just a spherical measuring receiver. So that SMR fits in your hand, you, you hold it within your fingers, and the laser, once it, once it hits that mirror on the SMR, now you're locked on target. So wherever you walk, wherever you position that SMR, that's where the laser will follow. And then when you place it on a surface, an SMR has a measurement. So we use a one and a half inch ball. So the laser hits directly in the center of that ball. That ball is a sphere. So it doesn't matter what point is touching. Anywhere from the center to a surface is going to be 0.75 inches. It's going to be half of that diameter. So then we know that the laser can exact, it can offset for that distance and pinpoint exactly where the ball is touching. So I just wanted to kind of summarize, I just wanted to put that back out there that it's a tripod, there's a laser sitting on that tripod and it follows this little ball wherever the operator touches it on the surface. Yeah, and the, the, the device itself, the, the, the laser head on the top of that tripod is automatic. It follows the prism and follows the operator. So you're not having, it's not like traditional surveying where you've got someone on the laser side shooting and someone on the receiving side receiving, you know, the, the laser head follows that prism with in, in an automated way so that it's, you know, it, it adds to the speed. Um, now with that offset, but we're talking about, pinpoint accuracy that is far beyond what a machinist could even interpret on a dial indicator. Yeah, the accuracy, 
you know, we, we mentioned earlier thousands of an inch. Well, the accuracy is in the millions of an inch, right? So, you know, we, we're, we're saying 12,000, 0.012. And when we're looking at the accuracy in terms of, you know, measuring capability over distance, so we're talking 80 meters distance. So the laser could be 80 meters away from the component and you're measuring, you know, in the million. So 0.00006 um, right. for accuracy. And then there's level accuracy, which is two arc seconds. Um, that's like going, I think two arc seconds for level. So if you think like a, a regular machinist level, and I'm, this could be off a little, but you're probably looking anywhere between 40 to 80 arc seconds. So arc seconds is a measurement of a degree, right? So there's so many arc seconds in a degree. Um, how, what that translates to the accuracy, the level accuracy on a ferro is two thousandths of an inch over 17 feet. So if you would need like a 17 foot machinist level to two thousandths of an inch accuracy to replicate right. that. And that for all of our listeners is why Chris is our technical director. <laughs> <laughs> because he he can get down into the minutiae of the details. Um, you know, when I was dialing in flanges um, and, and I was being trained uh, as a young technician and I was trained by some really brilliant, um, what I call veterans, uh, you know, we really focused in on being able to read that dial and interpreting the dial within a half a thou a half a thou. So is that six thou off or is that seven and being able to figure out to that level. And like, you know, the thing that was, you know, really important, um, a couple of things that were really important with, with dialing in using traditional methods is one, if, if you happen to just be you know, a little bit, um, on observant and you lay your hand while you're leaning in to dial the gauge, you can move the dial a thou or two. And so there's, there's a lot of potential for human error with um, when you're dialing in, there's certainly the human element of interpreting is that seven thou or is that 10 thou? Um, and, 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 you know, Often, if there's a machining component saying, hey, if I'm out by 10 thou or more, I'm going to machine, you know, do you interpret that to be 10 or 11? And when, when you're on the line of tolerances, uh, you know, do you err on the side of caution or do you, do you err on the side of economics, which is, hey, I want to machine this flange. And so, I, you know, there, there's... That, that human error component is, is, is key. The other piece that, that you know, for large components, uh, when you're dialing in, you know, just on a hot sunny day with radiant heat from the sun, you can see changes in your dial, you're dialing in as you're dialing in. And it, it, you know, and you can see a few thou change over an hour while you're taking readings. And so there's, there's other elements that, that, that play into how accurate the information is, particularly when you're on the line of whether this is within tolerance or needs to be machined. And we've, we've seen that with um, that human error or those judgment calls come into play where uh, we were on site helping the client with laser inspection and they had another organization who was doing some um, doing some field machining runouts and then making the call that this one needs to be machined. And then we would do a quick check on it with the laser when it came 
um, to us and found found out that you know the the, the machinist called it at fifteen thousand and we actually found it to be uh, to be nine uh, or or eight and and it didn't need to be a machine and vice versa. Sometimes we found things that were called that uh, were said no, it doesn't need to be a machine and it did. And I, so I would play. I would say my experience on both sides of this both as someone who's dialed in flanges traditionally and who has worked with the laser um, is that there's, there, there is, you know, the laser eliminates some of those environmental and human error issues about interpretation. Yeah, absolutely. And so I, I think the whole, you know, we're talking about, you know, accuracy and integrity of the data right now. Um, so, and then you asked me earlier about, you know, how, you know, how did we fine tune our process and what did we have to go through to make that process efficient and, and make it repeatable? So I think we can tie everything kind of in together now. Um, first, uh, you know, one of the things about accuracy and, and I, this is, you know, a stance that I have on accuracy. It, to me, like having a piece of equipment that can measure in the millions, in the thousands, you know, in the tens, I'd, sure, one is more accurate than another, but I consider, you know, accuracy for the task. So if your tolerance is thousandths of an inch, then you don't gain benefit from using, a, a, you know, an accurate into the millionth of an inch piece of equipment. So, you know, you, you, you select your piece of equipment based on your tolerance, based on what you're trying to measure. So, you know, like in this case, you know, a dial gauge would be just as accurate in data for the job as, as the device we're using, but you're absolutely right on the interpretation piece because the laser, there's nobody assuming or guessing with the laser, you get the data reported back to you exactly what it is. So then that kind of also speaks to the integrity of the data. It's a little bit higher when it comes through the, through the laser equipment. So some of the things that we've had to do, um, there's, there's reporting. So we can collect the information and, and you know, the, the equipment, the software, it's just added to, to that. There's no report there. There's, you know, so, so what we've done is we've created a system where we collect data and we collect important data and then we just have it. It just exists as data. And now we can export it in any format we want. So that was one of the keys for us to make the transition for our clients be extremely smooth. You know, this client, we, we, we get our runouts this way, this client, we get our runouts that way. It doesn't matter to us. We're just collecting data. And, and that's a big, that's a big piece of it. The other side is we want to make this as repeatable as possible. You know, where to place the laser, how many check, how many measurements to take based on certain diameters. So what's really great function that we've built into our process is we actually design the measuring program. So it takes minutes to do it. It works really well when we get the information on the flanges in advance. So picture you have 10 exchangers. You, you send me a drawing and a list of all those components. I know the diameter of each component. I know the measuring on the ceiling face. Within a day, I can create a measuring program that plays while the technician is measuring and literally shows him exactly where to place the SMR 
on each component for each measurement. If you place the SMR somewhere where the machine is not expecting it to be placed, it'll give you an error. So it literally, the machine is saying, okay, I know it's gonna, from the last position, it's gonna move here, and then you check it. And it little, it, so it keeps that repeatability and that consistency in the measuring every time we do it by creating these measuring programs and events. So effectively, it's like a template where we're saying, based on the diameter and the client specification, you know, we're going to take eight readings or 16 or 32 or 64, and we're going to take them on the raised face, or we're going to take them on the bolt circle. And that's just all set up so that it automatically knows where to look for the measurements based on the client specifications. Exactly. Right. And so what about reporting? You know, if you go into some clients don't have any uh, standard for what they want. Other clients have a specific flatness or run out report that's part of their program. They've got their own format. They want it to look the same, feel the same, interpret it the same. How have we addressed that? We just address it by asking them for their report. You know, if they have it, so there's, there's a couple of ways. So clients who've been doing this have a standard and all you need to do is share that standard with me and I can design the data to export into that format. Cause like I mentioned before, we're just collecting data. It doesn't matter how it looks when we collect it, it's columns and cells in, in an Excel file. We can program the software to look at whatever column that, you know, we know where we take, the 12 o'clock position on the ceiling face and report it into their report just through an export process. That's if they have a report. If they don't have a report, then we have some templates that they can use. And a lot of times what happens is the template will evolve over the job because then an inspector will see it and he'll be like, oh no, I'd love to, I'd love to have this change and I'd love to have that changed. And they're easy tweaks, it's just formatting. It's just formatting on how something looks because in each and every time the data doesn't change. You know, I could do an entire shutdown and you could come back and ask me to change the report a year later and I could give it to you completely differently because I still have the exact same data. Right. One of the things that I, uh, you know, and, and these may sound or feel like small sort of minutia ch changes, but they ha can have a huge impact on the infield decision-making that the various client stakeholders need to make when they get a report. Um, and for one client, uh, we were giving them their flatness inspection reports in their format, and it gave them all of their, uh, their highs and lows on all of the clock positions. And on the report, it stated, you know, their, their, um, uh, their tolerance and their tolerance in particular was was minus zero and plus ten percent. So that was their tolerance, and then so they would have to look at the ten or twenty or sixty uh, components and make a decision on whether this was a pass or fail. And you know, so you're and a lot of the time the the boiler maker uh, uh, personnel were were likely working closely with at 
the shells or at the wash bay, they're not the people in the client's process who interpret an inspection and decide what to do next. It's, it's an engineer, it's a reliability team. Often the report goes to a reliability team that then goes to some area engineer who has to make the call of good or not, or not good. And there was a delay of time in handing the report over to the right people and them, them looking at it, reviewing it and saying, do we need to machine this or do we not? And we simply streamlined that process for them by building in a pass fail mechanism indicator right on the report by looking at all of the components, comparing it to their tolerance, and it just turned red or green pass fail. And so they still need it to go through their process, but handing the right engineer a report that says pass, he doesn't need to take the 15 minutes to review the data to to make his decision because we've automated that decision-making process for them. In the, and you think about that over, you know, if we have 300 components we're checking and there is likely 10% of them that are a fail, um, you know, we're saving them hours every day that can put those components and let those components move to the next step. I thought that was a, you know, it's a small little adjustment to the reporting process, but I think it, you know, it was, it was a real big win for the, for that client to just have that one little indication automatically appear on the report by letting the, our template interpret the data with their tolerance and, and give them a thumbs up or thumbs down on the report itself. Yeah, exactly. And, and, you know, we'll, we'll incorporate the naming convention, you know, like, cause we'll email reports. So we'll get reports. We can email fails instantly to the person, you know, that, that they designate as, you know, needing that report. We can include pass fail in the naming convention. We've done that. You know, we also send summaries at the end of the shift. So you have that information instantly when you're dealing with this type of technology. Chris, let's just pivot to what, you know, what a lot of clients might ask about this technology because, um, you know, from my point of view, we have, we have, it's an interesting spread of the clientele who have tried this and then jumped into it and other clients who haven't even sort of crossed the Rubicon and said, we're going to start, we're going to try this and start to implement it. Um, so I think there's a lot of clients out there who could get a tremendous a massive amount of value in terms of gaining time on their turnarounds in terms of critical path by taking advantage of this and they haven't even tried it yet. Um, but they're all going to have questions. Um, some of them want to dabble in it and they want to have a demo and they want to try it on one flange. And it's all about, I mean, all of that is about gaining confidence that this is, this technology works. And uh, so let's just dive into what, what, what clients normally ask you ask us about this technology. So first off, I think we covered this a little bit about efficiency and about comparing it, but you know, what's a cost? Yeah. And you were right when you, you, you ballparked it between the thousand and $2,000 range, you know, it's closer to $2,000 per piece of equipment. So you would compare it to a mid-size to large flan tracer is right. what you can. And that's the piece of equipment itself. Um, you know, and I've already said that you would employ two personnel, not necessarily two um, lead personnel, you know, like two lead machinists. You really, you, you could, 
you know, we would deploy maybe a lead machinist because that, you know, something maybe we would get to or maybe we wouldn't, but we do use our machinists to operate this technology, right? We're not, we're not talking about computer programmers or software engineers. Um, this is very trainable process for mechanical minded technicians. So, you know, you're using very similar cost per scope to doing, you know, one-off medium to large flange facing. In terms of the day rate, you know, per one component, if, you know, if the flange process took a full day, then I would say it's comparable cost. But because we know it doesn't, the idea is to include more components to really get that savings. It will cost about the same as a medium to large um, flange facer. Right. But the way clients need to think about it is the cost per component, the cost per uh, inspection. And, and that's where if, if either flange facing or laser inspection both cost four or $5,000 a day with the labor, the equipment, the material, the expenses, um, the, 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 the way that someone needs to look at it is, you know, one traditional approach is going to cost me two to $4,000 per inspection and using a laser when you get that order of magnitude on a on a turnaround event it is uh, two or three hundred maybe four hundred dollars uh, per inspection um, for the same result yeah like you would need to have a hundred percent fail rate to not realize any savings right we've never seen that um, you know and and some clients wouldn't know if they have that because they're not inspecting everything. So, you know, the real kind of, when you look at how much does it cost, you know, I, I could always throw back kind of a, a snarky remark and say, how much does it cost not to inspect, right? How much does your leaks cost you? Yeah. You, you well, that's, I think that's the bigger part of this, right? So a lot of listeners will say, well, I only, I only do runouts on 10 surfaces a year anyway. So who cares? But what they're not taking into account is that they're, they're, ta they're only inspecting 10 surfaces, doing runouts. They're almost, whenever I see that, the, the people who are doing the, the, those limited number of runouts, they're almost always simply inspecting ones that they've had a chronic leaker. It's been leaking all year. It's been leak sealed. We better check the flatness on this because we've, you know, we've had to put, you know, a steam hose on this or a steam ring. And, and we think we've got some warpage issues as part of trying to fix this chronic leaker. So we're going to do a run out on it and we're probably going to machine it anyway. So we might as well use a piece of field machining equipment. Even in that scenario, you've got a you've got six or eight surfaces, you're still going to gain massive on productivity if you deploy both. If you know you might need to machine some of the components, you can still use a laser, inspect them all, and then hone in on using the field machining equipment only on the components that need to be machined. You're going to gain massive amounts of productivity, massive. Yeah. I, you know, we don't always have access to this information, Don, but... Uh, I, I estimate, you know, that the savings we could provide a client using this technology in like in a specific scope is, is nowhere near the savings and, you know, the gains they can make on schedule and resource loading, you know, when it comes to cranes and, and different things like that. I, I really do think that, yes, we're going to save you half. We're going to save you more than half on your machining scope 
but I think we can impact your project much more than that. Yeah, I mean, we had one client. I mean, we we know that, and I think half is is very conservative. Just in terms of the direct cost, if you just compare field machining versus laser flatness, you know, I think we're saving them eighty percent. But you know, it may it may be realized at fifty percent because there, you know, some of our clients or listeners are only inspecting ten surface ten surfaces. But the the big gains, I think, the two places is one. If we can inspect all 10 surfaces in a day, you just gained all those assets back so you can speed up your actual repairs and reassembly of those components by three, four, five days in the turnaround. That, that's and, a week. If those are big flanges, that's a week. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're eliminating a week of critical path activity by simply using a laser. So forgetting about the comparing of the cost between machining versus laser the real value is in critical path and it's taking time. It's, it's eliminating days out of the turnaround and giving your, your boilermakers more time um, or, or, or compressing their work because they're not waiting on those parts in the schedule. I think that's one part the, the second part then, and we've got some clients who, who use this method and they, they are realizing this value and is that for the clients who only inspect the, the suspect leakers, those 10 or 15 or 20 surfaces that they get to on a turnaround. They're also not checking the two or 300 surfaces that could be the next chronic leaker. And they're not doing that because it's just time and cost prohibitive. But it's almost always one of those other ones that they didn't check that turn into the next chronic leaker. Because if they didn't always have, you know, if they, if, if that wasn't happening, then there would be no leaks, right? Um, if clients had fixed the 10 that were an issue and they were fixed, then, and then the next year they wouldn't have a heat exchanger leak. And we know that they all do. Um, so it's almost always um, some failure in finding a flatness issue or finding a defect. Could also be some other things around uh, their bolting program around how they are managing that. But ultimately, if you miss one 60 inch heat exchanger and now you're up in you're operating and your plant is running and it's November and we're in Canada and it's minus 20 and it doesn't matter where in Canada you are, we get minus 10, minus 20, minus 40 everywhere in the winter. And that 60 inch heat exchanger leaks they're faced with an engineered leak repair enclosure and on a 60 inch component, um, what's the cost of that? Yeah. So we're talking hundreds, hundreds of thousands of dollars on that. Right. If, if they're actually allowed to use an engineered enclosure on that exchanger, because the vessel, um, the regulator repairs now for vessels and connections associated with vessels, are under very strict scrutiny, case by case approval from ABSA. So running, you know, thinking that, oh, well, I'll just put an enclosure on, on a, a Section 8 Div 1 exchanger, it's very risky. It's very right. risky now. Very risky in terms of having that mindset, thinking you're going to be able to. Yeah, exactly. Right. And then what do you do? It's leaking and you can't, you know, you're jumping through the regulatory hoops to try to get approval you've got a delay, you could be forced with an outage. Yep. 
or you're forced with, you know, other mechanisms like steam hoses and steam rings and trying to get people to hot bolt it, trying to nurse this thing along so you don't have to have a unit shut down to fix that, that chronic leaker. And if you can't mitigate the leak and get it to suppress somehow, now you've got a safety issue around an ice castle uh, forming in the winter or, um, or and, a, and a variety of other, um, other safety issues. Cause if it's flammable, if it's toxic, you've got, you've got other HSC issues you're facing, but you know, stepping aside from whether you get approval for that enclosure, let's say you do, you know, a six, a 40 inch, a 60 inch, an 80 inch, engineered in leak repair enclosure, and I don't care who does your leak repair, whether it's us or someone else, that's hundreds of thousands of dollars that was probably caused by a gasket surface issue, whether that was wrong bolting, wrong flatness. And we could have found that flatness issue for as little as $400. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think clients realize the order of magnitude but it does take a mindset shift in their, in their turnaround and their inspection methodology because, you know, they've been dialing in and picking the components they want to check very cautiously uh, to, you know, that dozen or two dozen that are the, are the chronic pains in the butt that they want to address that someone puts it on a turnaround list saying, Hey, you better check this one. Cause it leaked and, but not check the other 90, 95% because you know, operations or maintenance didn't identify them as an issue. So it's a mindset issue on, Hey, we're going to, you know, we're going to react to leakers and inspect those versus we're going to be proactive and cost effective and inspect everything to prevent leaks. So it is a, methodology change we have had clients who who have made that mindset shift on their own and and we have many many clients out there who are still dabbling or still still dabbling in trying to understand how we can help with laser or are still simply approaching this with machining yeah um what about the use of this technology chris um uh is it intrinsically safe so you, there's a version of it that is intrinsically safe. Um, you can bring in battery packs. You can, like I've mentioned before, you know, we use a computer. So we use a laptop at the location. Um, that laptop can have an intrinsically safe version. So when you combine, when you combine the lap, you know, an intrinsically safe laptop with a version of the laser that has a, an enclosed battery pack, you can create this intrinsically safe model if it's absolutely required. We've never deployed that technology. We typically use it in the laydown or in a unit that's been shut down, right? So, you know, unit probably working under a blanket, hot work, you know, whatever level permit, um, even though you're inside a unit, it's, you know, it's part of a turnaround, it's part of a shutdown and the intrinsically safe requirement hasn't typically come up, but it is available. Um, you, you know, through additional purchases and through additional additions of equipment. But, you know, so, I mean, our, our approach is we're getting a hot work permit for the electrical components of the laser and the laptop, but those are not right at the work face, right? Those are standing so, so many meters away from, from, from the work face. And, you know, the, uh, 
the prism itself, you know, what we're doing at the workface, that part of the work doesn't actually have any ignition sources. Absolutely. If, if your concern was residual vapors within, you know, the shell, right, within the, the component itself, there's absolutely no concerns. Nothing that we bring to the flange itself um, would, you know, have any risk of spark generation or heat generation. What if the client wants to scan the entire surface and have, you know, the report is normally 30, 16 or 32 components, but they want to do hundreds of readings. So, there's, you know, that's possible. And just different technology, different setup. So there, there's some scanning options that you can do with, uh, a, you know, a, a, a tripod laser tracker. There's some scanning options you can do. But that's not the most efficient approach. There's there's other very, you know, other pieces of equipment like handheld 3D scanners that work very well for something like that. So if you wanted to catalog defects and you wanted to recreate 3D models, maybe you wanted it for um, thermal analysis. You wanted to do an FEA on your exchanger. If that was your goal to reproduce the component, component its exact shape, the you know exactly where all the deformations are located are located, then we would just use a different technology. We'd use a 3D handheld scanner and we would scan and create a 3D model of that component. We wouldn't necessarily use the tracker for that. So then the important thing to realize is to just be clear on what the intent is. You know, are you doing a flatness inspection or are we doing some in-depth, you know, reverse engineering FEA on your exchanger because it's a chronic leaker? Right. And, you know, uh, we're not going to talk about that technology in today's episode, but, you know, we use 3D handheld lasers for taking measurements when we're designing leaking components to get exacting measurements so we can get, uh, we can arm our design engineers effectively with a perfect fit scenario in terms of uh, designing uh, a leak containment device. Um, uh, but that's a different show, a different technology, but uh, that, that is definitely something that our people utilize in terms of effectiveness and, and uh, accuracy for, uh, for other, kinds of, other kinds of design jobs. Yeah, what so, about Don, what I would say was, you know, when you're, when you're thinking about, you know, flatness inspection, don't confuse that with the scanning. You know, don't, we're, we're taking pinpoint measurements not scanning a feature or, or a component. So that would be the, I think the clearest message to deliver. Yeah, both use laser technology for different functional uh, outputs, right? Mm -hmm. What about weather? Yeah, so it can be adversely affected by weather. And I actually tie this back to a point you made earlier about temperature. You know, temperature can have an effect on steel, right? There's thermal gradient, it, you know, st steel, will, um, you know, can, can grow or, or shrink, I guess, uh, when we look at it based on temperature. So what the Faro has, it has a thermometer built in and it measures the ambient temperature and it can detect changes in temperature and also adjust the measurements based on that thermal gradient. Um, so there's a lot of, or it would, or you can program it to just give you a warning to say that your temperature has increased by so many degrees and now your data, you know, may be compromised. So what you would do is you could, um, you know, 
recalibrate the laser for the conditions and then remeasure the component. There's, there's a lot of things you can do there. So just want to kind of tie back that back to temperature. It has a built-in temperature sensor that monitors the temperature at all times and can adjust your measurements or give you feedback when we're, you know, the increase is at that point. Other things to consider, um, you know, the device itself. So just kind of picture having your laptop out in the rain, um, you know, not a good idea for electronic equipment. And, and the same thing would happen with the laser. So we obviously, you know, we can hoard it in, you can, you can protect it from the elements, but in terms of, you know, having it exposed to harsh climates, the snow and the rain, you know, we, we, we tend to keep it away from that stuff. For cold and warm temperature, like I said, it, it has a built-in thermal sensor and that will let us know when extreme temperatures are affecting our measurements. Awesome. So much like any electronic equipment, you've got to, you know, we have to adapt and make decisions around weather conditions if it's suitable to use, no different than uh, uh, how any other uh, electronic uh, tools are used based on weather in the middle of a turnaround. Exactly. Uh, Chris, tell us a little bit about calibration. Uh, you know, what's the frequency? What's the what's the what's the method of of calibrating uh, the, this tool uh, so that we're always getting consistent results? Yeah, for sure. There's um there's a daily calibration required. So there's a calibration in the setup, and if the you you run that every morning when you set it up. And you would also run it when you would leave the laser powered down, you know, say for instance, if there's a break involved, if there's a lunch break or something like that. So you would run a 10 minute calibration twice a day on average. So what you would see, and, and that's just a confirmation that the laser is operating within optimal parameters. There's also an annual calibration. So we send the component back to the manufacturer on an annual basis. They certify all the components with their standards in their lab and then they send it back to us with a calibration report, um, you know, for the for the next year. So it has an annual calibration, and then an operator calibration daily. But we typically perform it twice a day. Right. So I mean, I think about that the same way I would think about UT equipment, where you're you're annually certifying those assets, at, or maybe more often, depending on the manufacturer's recommended cycle. And then you're using calibration bars to validate the, the accuracy of the component as you're working with it. Exactly. That's exactly right. it. So, I mean, I think about it with, with bolting UT equipment that you have, you know, you have these annual equipment asset validations, which is really just validating with the manufacturer that it's still operating within design specifications. And then you're using three inch and six inch calibration bars to make sure that today's measurements are calibrated and always consistent. So I think many of our listeners are used to other types of inspection equipment that are in, particularly in the UT space where you're using cal blocks, blocks or even in the tube inspection space closer to heat exchangers where you're using calibration tubes to validate the readings you're going to get when you go into a particular type of tube and it's just part of the operating process, but it's not, it's not a bit, it's not a significant time impact whatsoever. It's just simply part of the process. Chris, uh, just to wrap up, um, what are your thoughts or what are, what, what should our listeners be thinking about when they uh, want to, want to think when they want to consider 
adding this into their inspection protocol and potentially changing uh, the way that they're doing flatness inspection, or maybe they're not doing flatness inspection at all. Well, I guess that would be the first point is, you know, determining what level of flatness inspection you're performing. If you're, if at your facility, you incorporate flatness inspection, and honestly, it doesn't even matter what percentage, then there's a place for this technology. If flatness inspection is something that you believe in from an integrity standpoint, then this technology can be deployed to give you, you know, more accurate, more precise, and more efficient inspections. I, no doubt about that. So any level of flatness inspection that you're performing, you can leverage this technology. What I think the one of the things that I really think about and, and what our operators could be thinking about as well is now that we have this information, you know, what do we do with it? What, what would you do with a year's worth of 100% inspection on your components? And then what could you do with that year over year? You know, what, how about, you know, so we're talking 100% inspection. After, you know, two, three, four turnarounds, maybe you don't need 100% inspection anymore. You know, you have the data to create a predictive model. And to me, that's the most, you know, that's an exciting idea. And I, I don't, I think people may be doing that, but they're doing it based on if something leaks or not, right? Mm. But, yeah. but how about doing that based on, you know, the measurement on this flange was six thou last year. Um, we typically see, you know, changes in the plus or minus, you know, six thou per year, 12,000 is not actually out of spec, so we don't have to inspect that one next year. Like, I, I don't know the, you know, I'm not here to design that program, but having that year over year data. So if you're somebody who's interested at all in analyzing, you know, in taking analytics and using that to create efficiencies and to improve your program, then this is the technology that will let you collect all that data and then you can compare it however you want. Right. Yeah, I mean, I can think of all of a sudden after a a few turnarounds, and you've you've done this, that you're going to be able to start to categorize your components into the ones that are seeing changes in flatness, and start to spot, hey, it's the ones that have major thermal cycling, or it's the components that are high pressure, and you'll be able to start to categorize your your various process streams and your assets based on risk of leakage because you're starting to see data and it's not a whole bunch of pieces of paper you know you we maintain all of this data we have the records we can empower our clients to have that data and in fact our new flange management system incorporates um, storing all of these flatness uh, records on each of their components so that we can have a multiple years of data on all of their components as we inspect them. So there's some, some interesting ways you can use analytics to predict and to start to categorize your risks as you start to do this. So I, I think that's really insightful. Yeah. And, and even a little bit more simple than that, I guess, even just having your pass fail rate and then knowing what that number is to just a lot for your machining costs. Right. Yeah, like just very absolutely. simple, like just tighten up your machining budget 
because you're going to have 30% failure and I'm going to need, you know, I'm going to need two thousand pounds flange faces and I can book my crane for that exact day because, you know, like you can really, you can really get accurate on, it's an interesting thought. I, 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 that's a great idea around using the data to start to plan the turnaround, planning the resources, planning the costs for the actual machining. Uh, it, it can also hone in and go, we better recategorize certain heat exchangers as more critical from our bolting program. And for those same uh, the data that you start to get from from the trend in flatness can also help you decide which ones need to be torqued, which ones need to be tensioned, which ones need ultrasonic stress verification, which ones need a different style of gasket going forward. So I mean, I think you can use this data in a lot of ways to design a much more robust plan around your entire leak-free program on your turnaround. Yeah. All right, Chris. Well, thank you for uh, for joining us again. I think this was a great episode, and I think we talked about a lot of valuable things that uh, if uh, our listeners are in the fixed equipment space, the heat exchanger space, the uh, the uh, the reactor vessel side with our clients, and they're involved in turnarounds and outages, then uh, this is a uh, a a, a technology that I think can give you some leverage and some advantage in, uh, in, in, in improving your program and in and ultimately improving your productivity and costs. So really appreciate it. Uh, for anyone who wants more information, you can reach out to us by calling uh, 1-855-436-4666. Uh, that's uh, Innovator's toll-free number, one 855 436 for 666 and our website is www.innovatorind.com and you anywhere on that website you'll see a button called want to talk click that button and uh, tell us uh, what you'd like to do to uh, look at um, taking advantage of, of laser inspection whether you want a demo you want to see a video of how we've done this comparing the two technologies or if you want to talk about how we can incorporate this into your next program uh, reach out to us innovatorind.com want to talk thanks very much folks and uh, we'll welcome you to uh, our next episode and hopefully you're enjoying uh, what you're hearing on our podcast thanks Tom. And there you have it. We thank you all very much for listening to this episode of the Industrial Innovators Podcast. We truly do hope that you have enjoyed, and if you wouldn't mind leaving us a like slash rating, that would be very much appreciated, as it does help the show out a great deal. If you'd like to find out more information or get in contact with anyone on the team here at Innovator, you can always do so at innovator.ca. Thanks so much for listening, and we will see you next time on the Industrial Innovators Podcast.